we've been traveling down this road to the kingdom and, and you know, gone all the way from creation to where we are today. And, and what we're looking at today is, of course, what I've kind of labeled this section, the rescue. This is the rescue. We, we had created a situation. We had cre- you know, God had created everything and he had created everything good, especially for us, but then we, you know, we thought we knew better. We thought we could do better and we rejected God. And of course, that created this impossible situation that we find ourselves in. Find ourselves in a world that's just, just engulfed in, in so many problems, so, you know, everyone wanting to, to dominate the other. But we also knew that within each of us was this other problem within each of us was this sin that just enslaves us. And so we have this dual mess that we've made. We've made the mess within our own lives, but we've also made this mess in this world. And that, that's the problem. Even though we may have been the initiators of all of this, it got out of hand. It's more than we can, we can deal with, and, and we're stuck. We can't save ourselves. And yet, what happens at Christmas, when people start talking about peace on earth and all of that, the unfortunate thing is that that's what they actually mean, literally. They mean peace on earth. They mean peace out there. But that's that's, that's only part of the mess. Remember, part of the mess is what's out there. The other part is what's in here. And that's why many people believe peace in the world will somehow mean peace in their hearts. They think like if just all the, the, the problems in the world would go away, I would have peace in my heart. And that's just not true. It's not even close to being true. And you, you know, all of us who had kids, you know, you, you sometimes have the happy kid who can be happy anywhere, no matter what you do. Kids happy. Um, you know, crayon, happy. You know, no crayon, happy. Just happy. And then you have that other kid. You know, that other kid, no matter what, it's too quiet, it's too loud, it's too hot, it's too cold, I'm too busy, I'm bored, I have nothing to do. No matter what, they're going to they're gonna turn the sunshiniest day into, you know, well, today. Um, cold, rainy, dreary. I think that kind of reflects all of us, that even if, if God were to just snap his fingers and just say, all right, I'm going to take away all of the political turmoil out there. I'm going to take away all of those, those problems. No more natural disasters. Weather's going to be perfect all the time. We're going to be able to grow whatever we need, et cetera, et cetera. Everything's awesome. No problems. 
we would find a problem. We would find something else to complain about, to fight about, to go to war over. We would just start it up again. Because peace in the world doesn't, doesn't take care of the problem that's in our hearts. We're going to look at this familiar passage of Scripture, especially around Christmas time. We hear it all the time, but a lot of us have probably never really unpacked the context for this, and we did. Um, we unpacked the context for it on Wednesday night, and those of you who missed it, um, I think we still record those. You could listen to that. But here we have this, this, this passage. There's actually two passages of Scripture from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a very complicated book. Uh, complicated in a lot of ways, um, but I'm going to kind of boil it down for you here. Isaiah is having to do one of the very, very difficult things to do. He's speaking for God, and he's speaking God's judgment on the Israelites. And at the point that he's speaking, there's a, the Israelites have become so messed up that they, they no longer have one kingdom. They have two different kingdoms. And and in both kingdoms, they, they, they've, they've struggled and they've forgotten about the law, forgotten about the covenant. They've become just like the groups around them involved in idolatry, but not just idolatry, also a lot of the um, cultural um, practices that in the law had been called sin. And so that's what's happening. And God is doing what God does. God is saying, all right, it's time for judgment. And Isaiah is coming along. He's a prophet speaking for, for God, and he's saying, judgment's coming. And the first form of judgment is those Assyrians. And the Assyrians were the empire of the day, risen to power, um, believed that, you know, how you control power is, I mean, how you control people is once you've conquered them, you know, you make sure they stay conquered, and you do certain things. You create, um, you know, certain images in their mind, and, you know, that will make them realize we do not want to rebel against these Assyrians. And if you were to look at the Assyrians and you were to look at what God says um, his people should be, you know, the Assyrians might be almost polar opposites. But the Assyrians are coming, and Isaiah's message is, the Assyrians are coming, the Assyrians are God's judgment on you, northern and southern kingdoms, accept it. Do not resist it. Accept the judgment. Accept the judgment. Don't resist it. It's not very popular. You know, if, if, if we woke up today and on all the news broadcasts or, or in, you know, open the newspaper or on your phone, on, you know, whatever, Twitter, everything is going crazy about, okay, uh, uh, you know, an, another country is thinking about invading the United States. The last thing we'd want to hear 
if you came to church today and, you know, everybody's packed in here, you know, oh, you know, the attack could start any time. And if, and if I got up and I said, that attack is God's judgment on America, accept it. Welcome the attackers. Don't fight back. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be very well received here and anywhere else that message is heard. That's Isaiah's job. He has to go tell his people the enemy at your door is God's judgment on you. Accept it. Don't resist. He said, it's, it's, it's too late. Sorry, sorry is not enough. What you guys have done has become so much a part of your culture, so much a part of your ethics, so much a part of your values that you no longer even think it's wrong. In fact, you don't really have a concept of what God thinks is right or wrong. This isn't something that can be fixed with everybody saying, oh God, we're sorry. No. He's telling them, this is in the DNA of your culture. It's only going to be fixed with kind of a reboot, a restart. And as you might imagine, if I were to give that kind of prophecy today about the United States, about, oh, we have these enemies and we need to just, just accept it, accept their rule, you might imagine that even among us, we would have similar groups, you know, rising up in opposition, and that's what happens in Isaiah. Because they know the pattern. They've read, they've, they've read, kind of, sort of remember their history. You, you remember going back to Judges? What happened in Judges all the time? What happened in Judges is God took care of the people. They're there. They're living, you know. They pretty soon forget about God, and they start becoming like the cultures around them. They start worshiping the other gods. They start, you know, accepting some of the cultural practices that God had said are, are going to destroy your society and things like that. And they're like, nope, we're going to go our way. God brought judgment, and then he brought a judge. The judge, the people repented. The judge delivered them. And then everything was good again. There's a lot of the people who said, that's how God works. Okay, yeah, we messed up. We accept it. We repent. God will bring up a deliverer. We'll be good. And it's in the midst of that that one of the groups is coming along that's saying, remember this? Remember this, Isaiah? This is a prophecy you need to take it to heart. They're not making this prophecy up. They're simply reciting what was part of, of what they already knew about the line of David. And that's what we find in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, what they're doing is they're actually quoting something that's true. This is true. This is a promise God had made to the line of David. But they're wrong about applying it to this situation. They're wrong about who they think this, this king that's coming, this child who's born, they're wrong about that. And they're wrong about what he will do. Ever know people like that? Quote scripture, wrong scripture for the wrong occasion? Maybe you might have done that before. Well, what that, that's what they're doing. They're saying, hey, Isaiah, Isaiah, you're wrong. Because God has, he's already Raising up a deliverer for us. You're wrong. They think, they think that God is going, has already got this child who's going to become king. And that king is, is actually going to restore the Davidic line the way it's supposed to be. This northern southern kingdom stuff was never supposed to happen. You know, David establishes, you know, the kingdom of Israel. His son Solomon not just, doesn't just hold it together, expands it to the point that it's almost borderline an, an Israelite empire. So many, so many people are, have made treaties with them. So many people are, are, you know, beholden to Israel. And as soon as Solomon dies... Kingdom splits. This is the restoration of that. You see, if I was reading this and then the kingdom split, I'd be thinking like, wait a minute. Is this prophecy wrong? Oh, no, 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 it's not wrong. It's coming back together. It's coming back together just when we need it. These Assyrians have come and now we're going to fight back and we're going to get this guy that God promised this child. And again, they're not completely wrong. We, we look at these words and we don't necessarily know what uh, all of them mean. But if you look at like wonderful counselor, now honestly, when I say wonderful counselor, what are you thinking of? Are you thinking about that? That person sitting down at their desk you're sitting on the couch and they're listening to your problems, but they're really good at it. They're a wonderful counselor. You're thinking about, you know, that, that high school guidance counselor you had that steered you right. You know, when you wanted to create a spam farm, they said, that's probably not the best career for you. Maybe you should, instead of a spam farm, you should go into a, 
you know, go to college. Wonderful counselor. Somebody who just gives good advice. That's actually not what this means. This is why the people, you know, they were wrong, but there's a reason it sounded like, you know, that they would come to these conclusions. Wonderful counselor is more the idea of wonderful military strategist. What? Wonderful policymaker. There's a reason they think this. Even the, the phrase mighty God has more this sense of like being a hero, and again, a hero in battle. Even Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace, like the, the, the Hebrews is really difficult, but it seems to be more literally the commander who brings peace. So it's not like crazy for them to come to this conclusion. It's not a crazy thought at all. But, you know, they seem to miss certain ones, like mighty God. That would have been blasphemous to call a human being God to the Israelites. Oh, we see some forms of, of emperor worship or king worship and trying to make them deity or sons of God. We, we see that happening all around this, the time that we're talking about Isaiah and later on. It happens. But not the Israelites. There's only one God. There's only one God who they felt was so holy that they wouldn't even speak his name. They wouldn't even write his name. There's clues in here of why they went with the interpretation that they had, but there's also clues in here of why it's not right. But their mentality is this, which is something that we resonates with us. This, this king, this savior, he will come and he will defeat our enemies and he will leave us alone. There's this sense of God is obligated to save. What kind of people think that all of their problems are external to themselves? These are people who already think that they're righteous. Notice what it says. He will, it says, there will be no end to his government, and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth. If you're unrighteous, do you want a righteous king to show up? If you're wanting a righteous king to show up, you either believe that you're righteous or you want to become righteous. But you're not going to be welcoming a king who's going to uphold righteousness and justice if you're full of injustice and unrighteousness. There's this sense of 
there's nothing wrong with us. What's wrong is the enemies out there. The king will take care of those, and then everything will be good. And that's the first point. The first point of Isaiah is that true peace is not achieved by eliminating enemies. Peace in the world will will not be achieved just simply by eliminating our enemies. Because one thing that we see in world history is as soon as one enemy is defeated, another one arises. And if we ever go through a period of time where there, where there are no like serious threats to us outside, we make enemies within. We make enemies of each other. True peace is not achieved simply by eliminating enemies. We're not the, the good, righteous people, and that if all of our enemies were, related, were, were eliminated, then, then we could just have this happy existence. It's going to require something more. And so when we look at this the second section of Scripture that comes from chapter 11. This prophecy that, again, it's, it's, it's right, it's true, but it's wrongfully applied. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This again, it, 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 it uses this image of the stump and, and the idea of the stump is that, is that the, the, the stump of Jesse means that the Davidic line has been cut off, has been killed. And they're thinking it's going to be restored. And it's going to be restored in its fullness. In case you don't know your history, your Bible history, just understand this. The Davidic line through the northern kingdom is destroyed in the 8th century. It is never restored. The Davidic line in the southern kingdom is destroyed in the next century. It is never restored. If this prophecy was about the restoration of the, of the Davidic rule, the house of David ruling over Israel again, it's either unfulfilled or it's failed. Even in, in the 160s, 
in the 160s when the Maccabean revolt occurs and Israel has about 100 years of being a sovereign nation again, even then, these are not from the house of David. But what this does tell us is that there's this stump. But something new is going to grow from this stump. Something different. And what's unusual about this is that, you know, a lot of this is what, is what comes from, um, you know, the, what they sometimes call royal liturgy. In other words, they're talking about the king. And of course, when you talk about the king, you, you often talk about him in really superlative terms. And, and when they saw stuff like mighty God, everlasting father, maybe they thought like, ah, we're not going to take that literally. But, you know, that we're talking about the king in the highest ways. But if you especially look at verses 1 through 5 in, in chapter 11, what you see is that the king is not at the center of this. The king is talked about, but it's not, he's not at the center of it. It's, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. He will have the fear of the Lord. It's repeated. Emphasis is not on the person. It's not on, oh, great king, God-like being. Instead, the focus is on God. In God's kingdom, God is king. Seems like, well, that's kind of self-evident. Why do we got to make a point? Some of you might have even filled that in the blank before I got to it. Good job. But why do we have to be reminded of that? Because we forget. We forget. We think God's kingdom is somehow a democracy. Or we think God's kingdom is kind of a, a shared rule. There's him, and then there's us. And, you know, it's a, it's a nice partnership. He's the silent partner, and you're the one who talks all the time. Works out well for you. But in God's kingdom, God is king. In God's kingdom, God uses kings. God uses entire empires to do what he needs them to do. God is king. The spirit of the Lord rests upon this one who comes from the stump of Jesse. And look at what it says, that the spirit of the Lord rests upon him and it's the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Notice how it doesn't say the spirit of the Lord gives him wisdom and understanding. It is the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And when it does talk about the king, it says, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. This is the Lord's kingdom. 
It's God's kingdom. This one who will come from the stump of Jesse will be used to accomplish God's will for his kingdom. But I want you to notice, I want you to notice when you get down to, um, you know, verse, uh, verses uh, three through, through five, and especially looking at four and five. It says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ear, ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. What's being talked about here? What's being talked about here is, yes, we're talking about this, this one that will rise from the stump of Jesse. But we're also talking about the nature of his kingdom. And we've already said, this is God's kingdom. And it shouldn't be surprising that the nature of his kingdom will sound a lot like God. But here's the point we need to connect, kind of complete the circle for us today. If we are going to be in that kingdom, we need to have those same characteristics. If we're going to be in that kingdom, in that divine kingdom, that kingdom that's known for righteousness and justice and peace, if we're going to be in that kingdom, we need to have those characteristics. If it's going to be true of the kingdom, it needs to be true of each of us who are members of the kingdom. And this is how it connects to peace. True peace comes when God reigns in our world and in our hearts. True peace comes when God reigns in our world and in our hearts. Again, just see that part where it says, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He does these things because he fears the Lord. See, true peace is not just in peaceful circumstances. Paul writes about that. He talks about in Philippians when he's in prison. He talks about being content in all situations. Because he has that true peace. That peace that doesn't matter, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter whether he's all by himself or he's in a crowd. Doesn't matter whether he's doing the thing he loves the most, which is teaching and, and sharing the, the gospel, or, or whether he can't do anything but pray. It doesn't matter. He's learned to be content in all situations. Jesus says something similar. He says, my peace I've given unto you. It's a peace that the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't understand 
how a Christian can go through the most difficult, overwhelming circumstances and walk through it and not walk through it pretending it's not happening, not walk through it numb, but walk through it experiencing all the pain but having peace in the midst of it. That's what it's about. God reigning in our hearts. But that is, again, it's, it's, not, it's not something we can do on our own. It's why we needed to be rescued. I mean, look at these, these Israelites. What are they about to face? Well, we know because we can look back and see what they're about to face. They didn't know for sure. They just knew this big bad enemy was, was at their door. But what's, what, the, what are they about to face? Well, they've already faced corrupt kings, and they're going to continue to have corrupt kings. But then there's going to be the oppression by the Assyrians. And eventually, the extermination of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians. We're going to have the Babylonians come. And that's going to be more war, more death, more destruction. They're going to be taken into exile. And eventually, they're going to be ruled by the Persians, who, by, in comparison to the Assyrians and the Babylons, were pretty nice to the Israelites by allowing them to return. But when they return, they're facing new enemies, as we studied when we went through Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and what God is trying to communicate through, through Isaiah is that, look, whether you're in the promised land or not, whether the holy city Jerusalem is standing or destroyed, whether there is a temple or not, you can know true peace. You can worship me. You can have this covenant with me no matter the life situations that you're going to face. And what we know from history is that a lot of the Israelites get it. They get it. They understand what Isaiah is saying. Maybe they didn't accept it at first, but they get it. It's true peace. How do I know? I mean, how do I know I have this true peace in, in my heart? I don't know. I mean, you, you have it or you don't. You, you, you know when you're facing situations, you know, what's going on in your own life. But I know what the Bible tells us about how we can have this. This true peace is, is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And just as the Isaiah passage was talking about the Spirit of the Lord resting upon this one, this true peace is is from the Spirit, and the Spirit comes to us when we have faith in Jesus Christ, when we have true faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we cannot really have this peace if we're trying to hold on to stakes in two kingdoms. But when we be, truly become Christians, we give up rights to the kingdom of the world. And we say, Jesus, I trust you. I accept what you did for me. Surrender to you. And Jesus promises, 
to do all the rest. Peace on earth. There's no peace for any of us unless there's peace in all of us. We can only have true peace in our hearts if God is king of our hearts. His kingdom can't simply be out there. His kingdom must show up here in our lives, in our experience. That's where the road to the kingdom lies. And next week, John's going to unpack more about the wonderful, unpredictable road that when God becomes king of our hearts, when he starts driving the car, it's all about love. And who knows? Who knows where God's love will take us?